Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, many of you are familiar faces and old friends, and you've been here many times over the years. Welcome back. And if this is your first time here, uh, welcome. Glad to have you with us. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and happy to be your host tonight. I should say at the beginning, like any of the events we have here at the center, they're meant to be friendly and informal. So um, not only when we get to the discussion part to feel free to participate, but also if you're so inclined as the evening is going on to go over and get something more to eat or drink, don't be shy about getting up uh, and going over and getting something. So it's meant to be a friendly space. I'm delighted tonight to uh, host our annual comparative theology lecture. Uh, since 2008, we've had many distinguished speakers in to give this lecture. And I think it's become part of the identity of the center, which itself goes back to 1960 and has had in many ways explored and set new frontiers for the study of religion and for comparative religious studies, as many of you in the room know very well. But when we think of comparative theology, we think of keeping together these sometimes sliding apart disciplines of theology, comparative religion, and area studies that the expertise that's required to be a theologian in a tradition and the expertise of knowing some tradition well, particularly if it's other than your own, often can slide apart and be divided up, experts here, experts there. And likewise, keeping the element of faith in some simple definition of theology, faith-seeking understanding, keeping these pieces together is challenging, and yet I think an invigorating exercise that is exciting to be able to do at a place like the Center for the Study of World Religions. I think we're also aware that the generations of comparative study and the generations of comparative theology are forever changing. The, the boundaries are shifting. What it means to study a religion changes over time. What it means to be a theologian changes over time. What those commitments mean, those areas of discipline mean. And I think we're also aware today that the, the neat boundaries of belonging to one tradition and looking at another tradition can sometimes be more fluid than we've imagined in past generations. So comparative theology is really dedicated to thinking both in terms of, of traditional boundaries, traditional ways of looking, but also keeping the doors open to new pathways. And over the years with this comparative theology lecture, We've had many interesting speakers of different generations of theologians and comparativists, and I think I've always been trying to uh, cross the boundaries. I should say at the beginning, I'm very grateful to the Henry Luce Foundation for a generous gift they gave us several years back that helps to make these lectures possible. So Luce is very instrumental in furthering the work of the center and also the work of comparative theology. So against that background, I'm very delighted and honored to introduce our distinguished speaker tonight, Marianne Moyert, who will address us tonight on toward a liturgical turn in comparative theology, opportunities, challenges, and problems. Marianne Moyert holds the Chair of Comparative Theology and Hermeneutics in Interreligious Dialogue at the VU University in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. She has also, since 2014, served as a guest lecturer on the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University in Leuven. Her, were I to read all her degrees, I would be here for another half hour. She seems to have studied in many fields, ecclesiastical and in the academic scene, so I just keep it brief. Uh, two of the uh, notable degrees is a Master of Advanced Studies in Theology at the Catholic University in Leuven in 2002, where she did a very interesting thesis, Interreligious Dialogue and Pluralism, 
ideal partners, question mark. And then several years later, in 2007, she completed her doctorate in theology, also at Leuven, with a dissertation in English. I'm only giving English. I will not attempt other languages here. A certain fragility, interreligious dialogue between openness and identity. In her teaching, I think both in Amsterdam and Leuven, she teaches courses in hermeneutics, interreligious dialogue, and the philosophy of religion. She also coordinates a master's program building interreligious dialogue at the university in Amsterdam. Uh, she is a prolific writer, balancing all the things she does. She manages to keep publishing. I'll just mention several of her books here. 2010, Never Revoked, uh, Nostra Aetate is Ongoing Challenge for Jewish-Christian Dialogue, a co-authored book. 2011, Fragile Identities Toward a Theology of Interreligious Hospitality. 2014, In Response to the Religious Other, Recur and the Fragility of Interreligious Encounters. I might add that this book, 2014, Bringing Paul Recur into the Conversation, I think it was one of the books that has made Marianne famous already, um, enriching the field of comparative studies by drawing on the enormous resources of Paul Ricoeur and helping us to imagine how to think about theology differently. So that's a much appreciated book. Uh, 2015, Ritual Participation and Interreligious Dialogue, Boundaries, Transgressions, and Innovations that she worked on with Joris uh, Geldof, uh, another book. Uh, recent essays that I'm aware of, um, some of which are in print, some of which are not yet, uh, for a volume coming out from Fordham University Press, Comparative Theology, Insights for Systematic Theological Reflection. She has a very interesting essay, Who is the Suffering Servant? A Comparative Theological Reading of Isaiah 53 after the Shoah. And then in another volume that's coming out soon, How We Do Comparative Theology, Comparative Theology after the Shoah, Risks, Pivots, and Opportunities in Comparing Traditions. Her topic tonight is about the liturgical turn, and I think she's also been exploring this field in very interesting ways in recent years. Uh, I was honored to be part of a panel with Marianne last year at the American Academy of Religion, the liturgical turn in comparative theology. How do we move from the text to thinking about rituals and other interreligious possibilities? And I think we'll hear a lot more about that tonight. She's also with the ritual scholar Jens Krainath, uh, she recently received a grant from the Collaborative International Research Program for a very interesting project entitled On Inter-Rituality, Comparing Local Theologies of Shared Religious Practice at Christian Muslim Pilgrimage Sites and Exploration. She's also part of a four-year project that is in its third year at the moment, Crossing Borders, Interreligious Ritual Sharing as a Challenge to the Theology of Interreligious Dialogue. So this is one of the exciting things about these lectures, pushing us beyond the way we've done comparative work in the past and saying, where can it go? And I think you'll hear tonight um, exploring the boundaries and opening questions for us. So with this background in place, and again remembering that Marianne's talk tonight is towards a liturgical turn in comparative theology, opportunities, challenges, and problems, let us welcome Marianne Moyert. So good evening. I'm delighted to be here, Frank. Thank you for the invitation. It's, it's absolutely an honor. And it's wonderful also to, to see new faces, but also faces uh, of friends and colleagues that I've met before. 
So, as a discipline, comparative theology is deeply reflexive and self-corrective. It systematically investigates its own vocabulary and probes its, probes its in underlying presuppositions to identify how they may hinder or even distort our understanding of the other and her tradition. As a result, comparative theology is constantly developing, growing and diversifying. And this lecture not only contributes to comparative theology's self-criticism, but also intends to add to that ongoing diversification of this discipline. Let me be more concrete. Comparative theology generally begins from a study of texts, scriptural texts that have been canonized, and commentaries on these texts, as well as philosophical, theological, and mystical treatises. Though this textual focus gives us access to some of the more subtle and nuanced reasonings developed in these religious traditions, I'm a bit concerned that this textual focus may limit our understanding of religion, and I'm convinced that broadening the scope of comparative theology beyond texts will also contribute to the theological creativity of this approach. I hypothesize that depending on the sort of source we theologize from, different questions will come to mind relating to different theological problems. Indeed, turning to material and ritual practices in addition to textual sources might reveal aspects of the divine that remain invisible when one stays within the limits of textual study. I do not in any way want to turn this into an either-or story in which reading text is placed over against engaging ritual and material practices. What I envision is a complementarity between textual and ritual comparison, not privileging one over the other. On comparative theology. Comparative theology is theology that proceeds by comparison. Rather than taking religious phenomena at face value, Patient learning and close study are promoted so that religious differences and similarities are recognized and taken seriously. Considerable time and energy is spent on actually trying to understand the other. Instead of going broad, comparative theologians prefer going deep. By reading smaller textual portions together and comparing them, the comparative theologian gains some insight into the world of the other without laying claim to full understanding. As a hermeneutical endeavor, comparative theology makes use of various historical and linguistic skills to enable the comparison, even to the extent that the comparative theologian becomes almost like a trustworthy friend who is acquainted with the religious language of the other. Diligent scholarly work is the basic condition to comparative theological work. It is slow and patient, Frank always says. This diligent scholarship, however, is always part of a theological project. It is a reading that happens for the sake of fresh theological insights that are indebted to the newly encountered traditions as well as to the home tradition. Now, historically speaking, comparative theology has developed as a practice of comparative reading. Text provides scope and clear boundaries for comparative analysis. Reading a certain portion of text is manageable and fits within the paradigm of back and forth, home and away that is so typical of comparative theology. While it can sometimes be opportune to see the place to art, music, ritual and other forms of 
discourse. Generally speaking, comparative theologians regard reading as the most solid means of theological learning. Other resources can be text plus, additional. Recently, however, scholars like Bagus Laksana, Emma O'Donnell, James Farwell, just to mention a few, have been trying to broaden the scope of comparative theology by drawing upon a variety of ritual practices. Last fall, the Comparative Theology Group at the AAR dedicated a panel to the liturgical turn of comparative theology. To my mind, these developments tie in with a larger turn to material and ritual practices, both in theology as well as in religious studies. And the above-mentioned above scholars, um, the work of the above-mentioned scholars showcases how a cross-fertilization between traditions can also happen through practices of cross-ritual participation. I think that this turn to material and ritual practices is promising, because at least, that is my hypothesis, it may also affect the way we think about the divine. Today, however, the most common approach in comparative theology continues to be based on reading and comparing texts. And since it is hard to imagine any kind of theology, as well as comparative theology, that is not based on scriptures, I think it's worthwhile to look at the motivations and the reasons and the arguments given by comparative theologians to turn to scriptures. Now, first of all, certainly in the world religions, texts have actually nourished the religious and moral imagination of religious communities and their adherents for centuries. Religious stories and their characters have played a key role in promoting appropriate behavior, in finding the, the right measure in complex situations, in learning how to deal with situations of infidelity, jealousy, despair, and in seeking to deal with the human condition in all its weakness and all its greatness. And these stories are not only narrated, but also ritually enacted in ceremonies. What is more, they have inspired generations of artists and musicians. In short, scriptures are part of the collective memory of religious communities. From this perspective, it makes sense to engage them when one wants to understand another tradition. <coughs> Secondly, it is often said that religious texts, because they are written down, are the most stable material at our disposal when we do comparative theology. They form a rather fixed basis to which one can always return. And as comparative theologian Catherine Cornell explains, while ritual forms and material artifacts change through time, texts offer a continuous basis for reflection. To be sure, she says, the interpretation of sacred texts changes and differs, but at least they offer a basis from which to study those differences and consider their significance for one's own comparative theological reflection." End of quote. Since texts are regarded as the most primary, uh, as the primary and most stable means to which religious meaning is communicated and shared over generations, they are regarded as the most obvious hermeneutical access to understanding another tradition. Hence, comparative theology reads the other primarily, primarily through its texts. Thirdly, and continuing along these lines, <coughs> texts are also central to theology which usually takes the form of conceptual reasoning based on critical engagement with texts on topics such as God, the divine, the real, the human condition, the world, and of course the relationships among these. 
Whether in Christianity or in other scriptural traditions, Holy Writ has given way to highly nuanced discussions among the intellectual elite in particular traditions. By reading these scriptures, together with their commentaries, or by studying certain philosophical or spiritual documents, one gains access to the discussions that occupied the minds of wise men and some women, and to issues and questions that were deemed worth de debating. Hence, these texts form a gateway to the conceptual subtleties, the nuanced reflections, as well as internal debates uh, on the grand questions about meaning of life, the nature of God, and the human condition. Now, those who practice comparative theology are quite aware that there is no neutral ground from which one can approach the religious order and her tradition. Prejudices and certain assumptions always play a role in the way one first reads strange texts and tries to make sense of them. The challenge is not to let, let these prejudices get the upper hand and to allow oneself and one's assumptions to be questioned and interrupted by the texts. And in this regard, I fully agree with Francis Clooney, who suggests that if we see our biases and watch them in operation, we can become freer and more vulnerable in our reading." End of quote. In line with this self-critical outlook, comparative theologians see it as part of their scholarly work to explore, test, and if needed, revise the conceptual categories through which they interpret their data. Thus, for example, Michel Vos-Roberts, along with others, has contributed to a feminist critique of comparative theology. Recently, John Tatamanel explored the category of religion. And building on his findings, he asks, is there comparative theology beyond religion? And Hugh Nicholson, in his book, scrutinizing the very, scrutinizes the very notion of comparative theology and uncovers its more or less problematic roots in 19th century scholarly work. The study of this self-critical work is never finished. We will always need to spotlight our biases and our blind spots and our inadequacies. And in what follows, I'm inspired by this critical work that has already been done by others like Vos Roberts, like Nicholson, and like Tatamanil. And in line with their work and that of others, I'll develop a genealogy of comparative theology which will explain why the textual focus of this discipline is somewhat ambivalent. The study of religion originated in the 19th century, and though it claimed to be a scientific approach, it was also shaped by certain ideological assumptions. These assumptions can be seen at work in the way that texts, rather than material and ritual practices, became the preferred objects of scrutiny in the study of religion. In those early stages of the emergence of that discipline, it was not uncommon to rank religions in hierarchical orders, according to their developmental status. The more attached a religion was to material and ritual practices, the less cultivated it presumably was. And of course, vice versa, the more tradition has successfully expressed its belief in textual form, the more it could lay claim to being cultured. Rituals were often associated with popular religion, whereas texts were seen as more elevated. 
and this sometimes resulted in binary schemes that placed rituals over against texts. The mind over against the body, the belief over against praxis, emotion over against reason, the universal over against the tribal, and the inner over against the outer. As anthropologist Birgit Meyer rightly points out, the pivot of these evolutionary models is the idea that the human mind can do increasingly better without the baggage of outer forms. True religion is internalized, it's pious, it's reasonable. One more related element to this hierarchical presentation of religion is that the more cultivated, advanced, developed religions were presumably, were presume, no, sorry, that more cultivated, advanced, and developed religions were presumably also oriented to a more transcendent and universal God, whereas less cultivated and less <coughs> advanced and thus underdeveloped religions remained oriented to a more tribal or particular God that manifested itself or presented itself in the material world. The ideal image was that of an invisible and unrepresentable God. Religions that envision the relation with the divine as mediated by means of concrete, palpable material were devalued, and notions such as meaning incarnation and presentia realis became suspicious. The genesis of this conception of religion can be traced back to numerous factors. <coughs> Protestantism, with its focus on piety and personal faith, certainly played its part. Some scholars speak of a Protestant bias in this regard. This, however, may be overstating it somewhat. In any case, such a charge runs the risk of reifying an entire tradition without further nuance. What is more, the spiritualizing tendency already goes way back to Paul and certain church fathers like Origen and Chrysostomus who developed anti-Judaic pat patterns of thinking, placing carnal Israel over against the spiritual church. Moreover, Protestantism is certainly not the only tradition that privileges the inward and the interior. However, it cannot be denied that under the influence of, influence of various reformers, religion came to be seen as carried through the mind and the soul, experienced and expressed through interior faith, and not primarily concerned with objects or externalities. Interior spirituality became privileged over bodily performances and ritual practices that engaged materiality, handling objects, touching statues, cherishing relics, worshiping the wafer, became questionable. Not only did such ritual acts entail the risk of inauthenticity, think of formal ritualism and its emptiness, there was also the real danger of idolatry. Departing from a rather pessimistic anthropology, many Protestant knights, more than Catholics for that matter, were concerned that ordinary believers would get confused when in a context permeated by images, statues, and symbols. Against externalist religious practices, reformers like Zwingli and Calvin pleaded for return to the purity and immateriality of scripture as distinguished from the things that claimed to mediate divine presence. Philosophical enlightenment traditions too, with their depiction of the human person as solitary and rational, are an important factor. 
the Cartesian subject approaches the world primarily by means of his mind. And in his effort to make sense of the divine, he likewise makes use of what sets him apart from other living, be living beings, namely his capacity to think. Indeed, according to Descartes, only the mind could be trusted to reveal the truth. Influenced by modern philosophical traditions, religions came to be viewed as systems of thought or intellectual constructions, which to a greater or lesser, lesser extent depended, uh, depended on material expressions and ritual performances. The more reasonable a religion could claim to be, the more philosophical appreciation it would generate. What is interesting is that in these enlightenment philosophical circles too, idolatry, confusing the divine and the natural, continued being seen as a grave mistake. Especially problematic was the superstitious and childish belief that natural objects could have divine power. Ritual and materiality came to be associated with primitivism in contrast to more spiritual, disembodied, and intellectual understandings of religion. Now, this modern understanding of religion has had a great influence on the shaping of the 19th and also the 20th century religious scholarship. It cannot be denied that for a long time, within academia, a mentalist approach to religion prevailed, according to which what really matters in religious life is one's inward dispositions, beliefs, experiences, and religious feelings. The outward manifestations of religious life, the rituals, the symbols, the sacred sites, the rules, would be only of secondary importance. Symbols and rituals from this mentalist perspective are mostly seen as expressive of particular insights, convictions and truth that were elsewhere formulated in a conceptually more clear and transparent way, namely in written sources. As a consequence, Compared to texts, less attention was paid to sacred sites, statues, and symbols, despite their prominence in religious traditions. If religious would refer to material objects and ritual practices, they would often do that by way of corroboration. And whenever symbols and ritual practices seem to contradict scriptural evidence, however, scholars would treat such cases as an aberration that could be attributed to popular religion which immediately devaluated them. Even though this mentalist understanding of religion has been criticized thoroughly, okay, its lingering effects can still be felt certainly in theology and possibly also in comparative theology. And I would argue that it is part of comparative, comparative theology's self-criticism to consider how it has been affected by this legacy and to explore how new approaches could further deepen and strengthen both our hermeneutical and theological work. Though comparative theology rejects stereotyped depictions of the religious order and her tradition. And I cannot think of a single comparative theologian who would subscribe to such binary schemes in which primitive religion is opposed to more cultivated and evolved forms of religion it is fair to say that comparative theologians are more comfortable with reading texts than with observing things and the symbolic practices revolving around those things. Even though there are exceptions, certainly the work of Laxana, O'Donnell, and Farwell, and probably there are more, 
Most comparative theologians do not explicitly thematize material and ritual practices as a source for their theological reflections, even though many do participate in some of the rituals of the traditions they study. What religious people do and how their beliefs are deeply embedded in particular symbols and symbolic practices remains mostly outside of the scholarly scope of comparative theologians. One consequence is that comparative theologians focus their attention to a limited subset of religious phenomena, namely the intellectual legacy of particular traditions as written down in texts. But what about what religious people do? The rituals they perform, the relics they cherish, the statues they dress up and carry around in processions. The pilgrimage sites that are visited generation after generation, the way religious communities dispose of their sacred texts, but also the way religious communities make use of symbolic practices to educate their uh, adherents, mold their bodies and minds so as to create the proper religious and moral dispositions. It makes sense, I would say, to claim that they also deserve our attention. Now, my point is not simply that texts are only a small subset of religious phenomena. I am also convinced that turning to non-textual sources may redirect the way we think about the divine across traditions. I think that by paying attention to the material and ritual practices of traditions, we will start asking different questions and may also develop new theological concepts. This conviction springs from an understanding of religion in which mediation is central. And to explain that, I'll now go to the next step. Certainly among comparative theologians who uphold a particularist understanding of religion, one can often hear the claim that religious traditions provide a symbolic framework to which the transcendent is experienced. This framework is analogous to language in the broad meaning of the word, of course, or culture which gives shape to experience and knowledge. Each religion, as it were, has a specific vocabulary that is both discursive and non-discursive. And by learning to speak a particular religious language, believers learn how to deal with the limits of life, with conflicts, with their own finitude, by placing it in a greater narrative. Rituals, symbols, and narratives structure the world and make it possible for human beings to find meaning in it. Within this framework, I would like to call attention to the notion of mediation. At the heart of religious life are various media making present the divine and enabling a relationship between the human being and the divine. Certain material objects and sacred sites can serve as a way in which the divine becomes present within the world. And ritual practices revolving around these tangibles enable people to relate to the divine. In this sense, religion, you could say, is a practice of making the invisible visible, of concretizing the order of the universe, the nature of human life and its destiny and the various possibilities of human interiority itself, as they are understood in various cultures at different times, in order to render them visible and tangible, present to the senses in and in the circumstances of everyday life. 
once made material, the invisible can be negotiated and bargained with, touched and kissed, made to bear human anger and disappointment. This mediation happens in a variety of forms, through scripture, through nature, symbols, sacred sites, ritual performances, images, statues, paintings, music, dance, food. Though it seems to be the case that within a particular tradition, one specific form of mediation may be more authoritative than others, for example, scripture, or perhaps mediation or recitation, it is not unusual that within one and the same tradition, a variety of mediations exists. All of these mediations function as a bridge to the divine. They make visible what is invisible, understandable what is beyond our understanding and nearby what is transcendent, palpable what is beyond our reach. People see icons and the clothing of the clergy. They touch stones and water, and they hear music from the instrument. Food is smelt and tasted. Religious traditions are multisensual, and much of their staying power comes directly through their, their appeal to the senses and their impact on the emotions. While the sensorium of, a religious, of religious cultures varies from place to place and from time to time, all traditions create and promote particular objects to be seen, smelt, touched, tasted, and heard. And as media, they do not only express certain insights that we already have beforehand, nor is it correct to say that these media function as some sort of serving hatch without additional value. Rather than saying that these media are merely expressive of our knowledge and experience, I would say that they are also constitutive and formative of what we think we know and experience. Put differently, the form of the mediation matters. Different mediation may illuminate, may illuminate different aspects of the divine and may enable a different way of relating to the divine. Or, by means of different media, the presence of the divine in the world may be experienced differently. I think it matters if we relate to the divine by listening to creation or hearing his voice in an ethical commandment, or experiences the presence of the divine primarily in adherence to monastic rules, or through the worship of icons, or perhaps even in a call to protest in a political fashion. Sacred sites, statues, food and drinking, ethical actions, reading scriptures, recitation, prayer or med meditation, they all mediate the divine in different ways. And we need to take these media themselves seriously and explore how they contribute to a particular way of experiencing the divine. Now, going back to the textual focus of comparative theology, I would like to make three remarks. First of all, scriptures, but also other theological texts, are one specific form of mediation next to other forms of mediation. Secondly, it's important to emphasize and to recognize that written media certainly when they are individually and silently read, speak to the human being in his or her capacity to think conceptually. In doing so, they appeal primarily to the sense of sight, which has become almost synonymous with the human capacity to reason and understand. Do you see? 
Other media will address or appeal to other human senses, such as taste, touch, smell, and hearing. Thirdly, and I ask, it's a question, could there be a correlation between our textual preference, especially with philosophical and theological texts, as a medium for our knowledge of the divine and for a more abstract representation of the divine and more abstract questions which are removed from religion as it is lived. Conversely, could it be that by redirecting our attention to material and ritual practices in various religious traditions, we could become more sensible to the divine as near and real presence. It could also be that our modern mind has difficulty taking seriously certain ritual practices which revolve around material objects. And maybe by redirect, redirecting our attention to what happens in the ritual realm, we may also have our perspectives altered, allowing us to rediscover certain texts dealing with questions that we have overlooked. Let me just give one example that came to my mind very spontaneously when preparing this lecture. In her work, Melissa Raphael, and it's just a small example, Melissa Raphael, not that her work is small, it's very interesting. In her work, uh, Melissa Raphael, a feminist post shoah theologian, analyzes and explores the different ways that Jewish men and women experience the atrocities of the Shoah. And how they try to hold on to the human dignity but also how they endeavor to make God present in the world. And Raphael's book, The Female Face of God in Auschwitz, is not about who suffered more, but rather about how men and women experienced God's absence and presence differently, and how this also leads to different theologies. Because, different theologies. Because, she says, through their rituals, and the rituals of men and women are different in those traditions, they related differently to God. And she points out that the dominant theme in most post shoah theologies has been that of God's absence, of God's hideness, hideness. And often God's hiddenness, hiddenness I have to say, eh? <laughs> often God's hiddenness is explained as his deferral to human freedom. Raphael, however, argues that God's absence was not the main theological concern of Jewish women in Auschwitz. In her reading, drawing upon testimonies, God's face was not hidden in Auschwitz, but intimately revealed in the female face turned towards the other. And she discerns the way in which women in Auschwitz try to embody, it, embody their relationship with God in concrete rituals of care for each other. And God's face was made present in material, ritual, and spiritual care for the other. For these women, these rituals of touching, washing, nourishing, created a space that allowed for the feminine divine understood as Shekinah to become present. So their issue is not that of divine absence, but rather that of presence, because they related differently to the divine through different rituals. According to her, and this fits in with what I said earlier, there seems to be a, uh, a causal relationship between the holiness of women's relations, relational acts and God's self-manifestation as presence rather than as absence. It's just a, an idea that came to my own, an example. Comparative theologians seem to work from a classical understanding of theology as mainly textual. Drawing from textual sources and being presented in a textual form which allows ideas to travel. 
if comparative theology is about comparing theologies, then it makes sense that one would focus on written texts rather than on various other non-textual media. As a matter of fact, I cannot imagine any kind of theology, no philosophy for that matter, that can do without texts and its conceptual reasonings. Nevertheless, also from a theological perspective, there are really good reasons to complement the textual focus of comparative theology with rituals. Yeah, so it's not just a matter of are we comparing religions, but also from a theological perspective, there are good reasons to say, let's turn to ritual practices. Rituals do more than express or enact certain beliefs, which can be further developed afterwards in theological reflections. Material and ritual practices do not simply express or transmit truths that, are already exist, that already exist apart from them. They are truly creative. They can alter understanding and generate new insights and even criticize tradition. Participating in ritual activities can sometimes generate new thoughts and bring about change in tradition. Rituals can be pioneering rather than simply expressive. They can be a starting place of imaginative and creative thought, which may even challenge and contradict tradition. I always have to think about, um, this is not in my text, but I, just, I always have to think about the, uh, in, in the feminist strive of changing um, by changing certain matters and cert certain patterns, one of the things feminists asked for was, for example, that men would no longer uh, open the door for them and so that the, the ritual patterns would be changed also as a way to challenge the tradition. Um, but that is just between brackets. <laughs> but as, a, as an example. Nicole Boyvin explains this as follows. In many cases, ideas and cultural understandings do not precede but rather are rather helped into being by the material world and human engagement with it during the course of ritual activity. Human thought and experience has not only used the world as a prop for expressing itself, but has in fact often be, been enabled by that world. Ritual can be a very creative act that does not just express or represent, but actually does something. It can alter understandings, bodies or the world itself, as understood by human beings. End of quote. Especially in Christian liturgical theology, the idea that there is thinking through rituals has been developed more fully. Liturgical theologians like Kavanagh, Fagerberg, Schmemann argue that liturgy contributes to the ongoing development of tradition and gives rise to theological reflection. Thus, it is both a source and a location for theology. According to Kavanagh, Although liturgy may present itself as unchanging, it does actually change over time in response to new experiences and concerns. Liturgy is adjusted, and these adjustments are theological in nature. And David Fargaber argues that liturgy is theolo theolo theologia prima. Liturgies are not only expressions of theology, liturgy can also be a foundation of theology. Liturgical language brings reality into existence. It may constitute a new reality. It is transformation, not just expression. Lex orandi establishes lex credenda. Now, though Fagerberg may be overstating his case a bit, 
And although a more nuanced understanding between liturgy and theology may be in order, it is important to realize that liturgy is not just something that is added to theology, but rather an important locus where the community theologizes and develops its own understanding of the divine. Theological insights sometimes develop while celebrating, and these insights may alter and transform the co and correct the church's theologizing about tradition and the other way around. Of course, if one takes this argument seriously and would apply it to other religious traditions in an analogous way, and that is something we can discuss, that would imply that comparative theologians ought to turn to the ritual domain and engage in some form of comparative, theological, uh, comparative liturgical theological work that tries to read the symbolic embodied language of liturgical performance and that seeks to grasp the extra-verbal content. Material and ritual practices then become an important loci for comparative theology, offering yet another means of deep learning across religious borders, as Frank would say, because rituals have the power to affect the ritualists. Now, how should we proceed, or how can we proceed? In a manner not unlike cross-reading, we ought to explore the possibility of cross-ritual participation which means engaging in a detailed study of a specific ritual procedure or religious ceremony. As is the case with strange texts and their traditions, when you turn to a liturgy that is strange and belongs to another tradition, you will have to learn new vocabulary, alien grammar, and different syntax. Comparative theologians will have to be attentive to the space in which the ritual is performed, the time when the ritual occurs, the ritual objects used, the sound and language employed and produced, the roles of ritualists and the actions performed. Usually, this implies, implies fieldwork and participant observation. To attend to the specificity of symbolic practices, Scholars should also interview ritualists and examine individual and amic accounts as well as collective amic accounts. This amic approach helps the ritual scholar to understand what ritualists under consideration think of the act they perform. What do the practitioners understand themselves to be participating in? How do they interpret the ritual performed? What local theologies can be found at the liturgical site? The first focus will be on what religious believers belonging to different religious traditions actually do and what they think they're doing when they are doing something. Apart from observing what others do and interviewing rituals, ritualists, a practice of cross-ritual participation will also include doing as others do, as Mark Heim often says. Thus the body becomes tuned until it knows in a way the mind cannot. In that way, the comparative theologian learns through her own body and learns by observing the bodily activities of others in what they are doing. The comparative theologian becomes an active learning learner. By drawing encounter into the body, interwriting promises a significant alternative to intertextuality, insofar as the written word of comparison invites us through the mind and the intellect while interwriting has a comport through our bodies. Janine Hill-Fletcher says, this bodily dimension brings us, in, brings us in such a way that my senses and my body precedes my conceptual understanding of the event. Now, in his research on shared pilgrimage sites, comparative theologian Bagus Laksana testifies to the transformative power of such forms of ritual participation, or what he calls double visiting. 
In language that resembles that of Clooney on intertextuality, Laxana says, in the process, the comparative theologian, Kum Pilgrim, pays extended and multiple visits to the religious world of the other, and then returns home more refreshed, both in terms of spiritual effect and theological understanding, end of quote. The participation in the text is complemented with the participation in the rituals of others. The comparative theologian knows and learns through his body. The key becomes to study in a similar way as it is studied by Jewish students, to engage in Friday prayer with Muslims, to sit Sazen with Buddhists, to partake in a puja ritual in the Hindu temple. Entering the sacred space of another religious community and being shaped by their rituals could create the possibility of a deeper interreligious understanding rooted in real religious life. Like texts, rit rituals do something to those who engage and cross-writing becomes a new avenue of interreligious learning. To experience these rituals of another tradition or community may serve as a way to order your own ritual and your own religious tradition. And it's possible that in the process of this ordering, of this alienating experience, um, new meanings emerge. The lasting importance, of, lasting importance of texts, closing the circle of my argument. Interwriting implies a turn to lived religion, which is, by the way, not the same as a turn to popular religion, which balances out the mentalist approaches of most theologies. Hopefully, this turn will stretch the interreligious imagination even further and will open up new possibilities for thinking the divine. Nevertheless, I do not want to turn this into an either-or story in which reading text is placed over against interrituality. I rather envision a relationship of complementarity between intertexting or cross-reading and interwriting or cross-writing. Appreciation for the role of material and ritual practices as a theological source should not result in a depreciation of the importance of texts. I, for one, cannot imagine any comparative theology without texts. I agree with Kevin Schilbrak, who states that texts have a representationalist function. That is, they can make and justify claims about what exists in a way that practices in and out of themselves cannot. But it is likewise important to recognize that the study of material and ritual practices may complement the study of texts and challenge the study of texts, because they are not only expressive, but also generative of thought. Now, first of all, a few remarks to close. It's important to appreciate the role that texts play also in a ritual context, the liturgical rubrics, prayer books, scriptures, blessings. This will surely also include asking questions about the use of those texts. How are they recited, sung, prayed, heard, and by whom? How are they handled as symbolical and material objects, touched, smelt, wet, kissed, or even venerated as divine embodiments in a communal setting? Attending to the various ways that texts are being used and handled in a ritual setting will correct the too modern academic or scholarly assumption that texts are only there to be read and studied in solitude. I think it will also be important to draw attention to the fact that these texts are often venerated, treated as sacred, and not only because of their content, but rather because they are embod embodiments of the divine. They are dwelling places of the divine. That is 
perhaps why, for example, the Jewish tradition of the Yad is used to read the Torah so as not to touch the scrolls. Or why the Bible in Catholic Church is kissed by the priest after reading from it. Or why worn out copies of the Quran are ritually burned and buried. Or why in Mahayana Buddhist traditions the sutra are venerated. I agree with Christina Mirvold, who argues that the very existence of these and other practices suggests that text attributed a sacred status evoke powerful values associated with both their content and with their physical form. In many religious traditions, people have a deep concern for provi providing a respectful treatment of their sacred texts, similar to deities or human subjects of exalted status, even when these texts are considered as obsolete or even useless. Secondly, we should not forget that even as ritual objects, certain texts have content. They say something to someone about something. As religious discourse, these texts play a key role in the religious communities and their ritual practices. And they continue to stir the religious imagination, guide ritual performances, inspire the creation of images, statues, and sacred spaces for devotion and worship. And they do so both both in a ritual context, where often the textual and the material dimension of these texts are interwoven, and outside of that context where these texts are expressed in art or music or simply read or contemplated. Together with the life world of ritualists, they are part of the hermeneutical framework that molds people and affects what rituals mean. Ritual contributes to the production of religious meaning but that always happens, so it seems, inspired by, in conversation with, or in reaction to particular religious texts, which belong to the collective memory of a tradition and which are recognized as authoritative. As James Farwell puts it, formation and hermeneutics through practice is happening in both directions, at the intersection between the life world of the person and the liturgical rites and within both the life world of the members of the assembly outside the ritual, and within the ritual, texts are part of their formation. Rituals produce meaning, but they also, they also only mean something within a broader hermeneutical framework in which texts have a key role to play. Thirdly, and just as importantly, it is necessary to attend to texts that, that contain explicit liturgical theology. Though it is true that religious meaning is produced in and through rituals, and that the latter are an embodied enactment of theological reasoning, it is also true that what happens ritually is often, though not always, made a topic of, uh, made a topic of theological discussion in liturgical texts. These texts contain forms of reasoning, forms of reasoning uh, in which the theological meaning and the significance of particular ritual procedures, prayers, and ceremonies is made explicit. These texts often attend to the performative dimension of ritual and are quite often specific about ritual, ritual rules, what to do, how to do it, who can do it, and so forth. But they also connect that performative dimension with the larger theological tradition. To neglect these texts would come at a high price. For one then misses valuable witnesses to the restless creativity of generations of intellectuals and practitioners. 
For decades and centuries, women and men faced the inspiration and limitation of their textual and liturgical moment, and then in uh, liturgical moment, and tried to make sense of that also within texts. Interwriting alone will, to my mind, not suffice to grasp the meaning of the performance of a ritual, just as intertexting alone is too limited. In this regard, I agree with Anne Blackburn, who, while critical of the textual focus of religious studies, also warns against an approach that would deny the value of the study of religious texts. Just as I think that it will enrich theology to turn to ritual, it will impoverish comparative theology if such a liturgical turn would imply a retreat from texts. We need to avoid finding ourselves in an intellectually untenable position, Anne Blackburn says, where we fail to recognize the often profoundly influential connections between texts and devotional practice, and to neglect the very high value accorded to textual composition, transmission, and interpretation with the communities we seek to understand. Moreover, in retreat from the study of texts, we ignore crucial evidence of the processes by which religious collectivities have renewed and transformed themselves and continued to do so. Last but not least, comparative theologians are writers. They produce texts to disseminate their insights and reflections, which will hopefully be read by others and contribute to a hermeneutical and theological understanding of the other and her tradition in comparison to other traditions. Though liturgy is a locus theologicus, certainly in academia, theology will continue to be produced in written form, which also guarantees, at least to a certain extent, that the ideas expressed in there can travel around the world and be picked up and discussed again by others. The abstraction of writing potentially saves lived religion from its local context. For, for all of these reasons, I think the field of comparative theologians needs both te textual scholars that read and compare texts from two traditions in a detailed fashion, and those scholars who place more emphasis on fieldwork and lived religion. Ideally, both will work in close contact with one another and will engage in an intellectual discussion that will further inspire their theological work. Thank you. So we're very grateful to Marianne Moyer for a wonderful presentation, uh, extremely clear, and so many provocative ideas expressed in such a short period of time. And she's also been good about compacting it into good time, because we have, um, say, 25 minutes or so for questions and comments and so on. And the floor is open. It's an informal discussion. And Marianne will take on all comers. Who would like to go first? I wonder if you could say something about the, um, the connection between theological and Comparative engagement of ritual and anthropological yeah. social science. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I, the the project um, 
Frank just alluded to that I got from the AR, it's like a small grant, is together with a, a ritual scholar and also an anthropologist. And I think the year before this one, there was a session also at the AR in which there was a discussion about how to interconnect and interweave uh, anthropological research and fieldwork research um, together with comparative theology, or theology at large, but certainly also specifically comparative theology. And um, I think that's very important. What I but I still see, and, and, and my colleague, who is then an anthropologist, also um, um, affirms that, is that quite often um, anthropologists um, and ritual scholars too refrain from asking theological questions and engaging in theology um, in an effort to keep the boundaries very clear between uh, what is theological work and what is non-theological work or what is anthropological work and not to contaminate uh, the, the scholarly work of the anthropologist with theological questions. Uh, on the other hand, you do see that um, also theologians do not always, um, well, or even not that often engage in anthropological work, that there's still a lot to be done there. And so I think um, this kind of work may lead maybe one way to, to, to enable that intersection between anthropological work and, compa and comparative theology. Um, and I also think it will enrich both. Um, I think, but I forgot his name, Robbins, is that Joel, Joel Robbins, Robbins, is that correct? Yeah, yeah um, who pointed out that it is important for anthropologists also to ask those questions. And my colleague, for example, also says like, he looks at shared pilgrimage sites and he says like, it's, it, 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 can become a bit strange that you are there and you're observing everything and you're looking at what ritualists perform at sites like that, um, but that you refrain from asking questions about what are the theologies behind what they are doing, um, because it, 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 it also uh, limits your understanding of what is going on there. So I think this is a way to bring those two together, and I think in academia, I, aren't we like almost ready now to stop having all of these disciplinary boundaries and just like get over it? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, Adam. <laughs> we had a lot of conversation yesterday, so yeah. Thank you very much. That was really enlightening. I have a question though. I understand that theologians are very concerned with meaning. And I understand that academics, especially those who study religion, are very concerned with meaning. <laughs> but isn't the brilliance of ritual that it bypasses the problem of meaning and the concomitant problem of truth or falsehood connected to meaning? Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> that it gets us out of that? And in doing that, I would say, perhaps that's why ritual is so successful in the process of what you call mediation. I never thought about that before in those terms, but it's very useful. Um, and just, it's not fair, but to refer to our conversation of yesterday, isn't that mediation a kind of making implicit explicit, all right? By revealing what really is, you know, the real sources of life and meaning and so, so, so. And isn't the fact that ritual does this without focusing on meaning make it precisely ritual rather than theology, a particular useful way of doing it. Um, yeah. I, I, I understand your question. I'm struggling with it, and you know that I am. Um, so 
I think it's not a black and white, on, there's not a black and white answer. I think um, when I look um, at Christian liturgies, and I'm, I'm, um, and again, we can have a discussion about whether we can do this analogous to other traditions. That is a big question, but it's a similar question as can we take texts as the focal point of comparative theology and then do it for all traditions. So the, the, we, we have a bit of an issue here. Yeah? Um, I think certainly in Christianity, um, um, Literature is a site of doing theology and is a site of where uh, that is also productive of meaning and we can point to different um, uh, examples where uh, theology also emerged from uh, liturgy and, 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 and um, I'm thinking for example uh, of all the, the doctrine of Mariology for example that emerged from practices that were already at grassroots level in lived religion um, and, and changed tradition and changed the way within Catholic tradition people think about Mary, for example. Um, and again, always in conversation with. At the same time, um, I, I hear you, and I, I, I think one of the things that I, for example, love about liturgy is that it sometimes stops the thinking. Yeah? So it sometimes allows you for a moment to not think, yeah? to just give yourself over to stop the struggles of life also, and to, to, to just but I don't think it's a black and white question. Um, I don't think you can say rituals are without meaning, um, um, and that it's just the focus of theologians to say that rituals revolve around meaning, just as I don't think you can say that the only function of, re of rituals is meaning production. So I, I, I think it's more complex than that. Um, and I do not know whether it depends on the sort of ritual or the context, or I don't know. So I, I wish I would, but I do not know, and I think that is something to look into. Um, well, he's the moderator, so. <laughs> do, uh, do, you, do you want to just take your own questions after you? Yeah. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, two thoughts. One, uh, actually, to this topic right yeah. now. I am. I was recalling, um, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish yeah. home, and I remember from my, my father, rest his soul, taught, his favorite topic to teach was the, the meaning of halacha, the meaning of the, you know, the rules that you were supposed to. So from a very, very young age, when we were kids, he would say, okay, we wash hands with soap for hygiene, and now for spirituality, and we would wash our, uh, our hands for the morning washing, and he would, he would repeatedly say, you have to know why you're doing everything, what the meaning is behind it. And so it's, I, I was smiling to myself because it's true that many of my friends in the Orthodox world performed these rituals and never knew what they meant. And my father being both the philosophy professor and the ritual observant person insisted that we understand everything we do. And so to what you're saying, and so you should have met my father because anyway, so another point later. Yeah, well I I I have a father who is a philosopher too and when we would enter into church, when we would enter into church and I would ask him all of these questions, he would say, Shh, pray and be silent. This is not the place to ask this is not the place to ask questions. This is the place to pray. So it's it. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think you had wasn't it? I, I meant to piggyback on the previous question and on your answer. Do you do you think about 
what is um, healthy ritual and what is unhealthy ritual. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What are you thinking of exactly? Well, uh, um, I'll give you a, a for instance, the, the, the KKK burning a cross. Yeah, that was not very reflexive. That was just so when you say you want to stop the thinking, you want yeah. to stop thinking. So, but there are other more ambiguous ones. The priest with his back to the congregation, then turning around. So, I think that the the, the question of attaching meaning is also might be seen as uh, thinking about whether the rituals are any good. I mean, the cutting yeah. of women in, yeah. in countries. This is, okay. a, this is a, yeah. I mean, just to say that they, 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 they produce powerful religious feelings. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a good thing. Huh? Yeah. So I would, I would answer in two ways. I would say yes, indeed. I think it's important that um, um, that is one of the reasons why I think it is important to keep on thinking about the meaning of rituals and to ask ourselves, really, do these rituals still mediate the divine or are they, did they become idolatrous, for example? This is a question which is very important in different traditions. But I would immediately add, do not forget the fact that rituals too can be challenging and critical of tradition and can change the tradition. So I, I think, so yes, but then I would also add the fact that it's not just, I, I would, um, uh, dispute the fact that it's only from tradition, yeah, from theological reflection, that um, we need to see the theological reflection somehow as a, how do you say that, and 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 you're not helpful. Like someone who is guarding the, the correctness of the tradition. I would also say that sometimes the rituals can challenge the authority of the tradition. So both, I would say. Does that and make sense? Text. And the text, yes. Which, yeah, OK. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Diane. Uh, it's sort of along these same lines. Um, as a theologian and as a scholar, are there things that you could give examples of that you can understand or glimpse uh, the meaning of through ritual that are not accessible in the text? Yeah. I think for me what 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 um, um, what helped me for example was was indeed that 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 um, that example of of Melissa Raphael how she 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 really looks at those ritual practices and how that 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 shows us a different way of experiences experiencing the divine um, I think also when I'm, I'm looking at a project of shared pilgrimage sites, for example, I think you really need to engage in those practices and go and look at that lived religion on site, what is going on there, uh, to really understand what is happening there. Um, I, I think it's, it's also not that, that different from what, what religious scholars would say as if you want to understand the religion, go on site and, 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 and observe what is going on and even enter into a participant observation. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I had to write a, uh, well, I didn't have to. I, I, I was asked to write a paper on Christians celebrating Seder meals um, and uh, as a critique of the Judeo-Christian legacy. And um, so I was writing this paper and 
to be honest, it had been a while since I uh, participated in a Seder meal I, with, with, with some of my Jewish friends. Yeah? And so I was, I was uh, really basing myself. I had all the texts, and it had to be correct. And I, I was very concerned that I, uh, shall I say, this presented the Seder meal correctly, as a, this source and that source and on this table. And I was completely immersed in the textual sources. Yeah, so when I sent this, I always do that. Whenever I, I write on a Jewish tradition, I send it to Jewish friends or colleagues or scholars to see, like, did I get it right? Mm -hmm. you know? And so they said, like, this is textbook Seder meal, what you just kind of wrote down. Um, and this is, this is it, it doesn't have the, the messiness and the, the, and I actually know that because I celebrate it so often. So I made this in this structured thing, you know, step one, step two. And uh, so again, before finishing the paper, I, 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 I was invited again to celebrate. And, and, and the, 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 certainly as Christian theologians writing on such ritual, you have like, apologies, the Eucharist in mind, so it's like, um, and, and it misses the, the, uh, the non-authoritative, the, 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 how do I say this, 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 yeah, a bit the messiness and the, 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 the meals, you know, it's, it's, we make it too liturgical. In, I'm sorry, but we do. And so it was by through participating that I really understood that much better also um, and, 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 and the way that that is really a ritual. So for me, that was very important also to then write on, on, on that work. Yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, I think in your lecture, you juxtapose the text and ritual as non-dualism, as non-dualistic uh, division. You say you, you want to find the complementary rule mm -hmm. between text and the ritual. But uh, throughout our discussion, I think we have a division, a basic categorization of text as kind of way of thinking and a ritual as a way of doing. So they must be complementary to each other. When I listen, to, when I hear this, you know, I'm from China, and uh, usually uh, I think my own tradition, uh, the Confucianism, the ritual is a heavily loaded meaningful word. But for the Chinese tradition, ritual is, does not only refer to religious ceremony or, or liturgy. It's kind of like uh, all-encompassing possible ways of human civilization. So language and the text is actually kind of ritual. It's a subsection of ritual. So, so text and ritual is in continuity. Yeah. It includes uh, social etiquettes, uh, political institutes, all kinds of things, all subsumed as ritual. So in this way, uh, for me, there's kind of new uh, ontological possibility to to categorize text <coughs> and ritual as the same thing, and then maybe from this perspective, we can have more resources to deal with this text. Yeah, but I, I think um, I didn't, I really didn't want to say that texts are thinking and rituals are not thinking. I actually wanted to say the opposite, that, that rituals are also a way of thinking, <laughs> and that, in addition, that texts are often part of the ritual, and in that being part of the ritual, sometimes um, the focus is on the content of the text, but sometimes the texts are just used as objects within the ritual. So I think it's, it's not this and that, but it is also already very much interwoven or interwoven. Um, so I, 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 I think we're a bit closer to one another uh, um, then, then, um. Maybe my point is, from the Chinese perspective, the reason to make you to kind of rectify the tendency of contemporary contemporary theology to pay mm -hmm. more attention to ritual rather than text is because 
this problem problem specifically happens in this context. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think you did kind of get uh, some kind of dichotomy between thought and action. I mean, that was sort of the underlying starting point. <coughs> A lot of what you said, right? mm -hmm. and uh, um, and then you had this separation between you know, men and women, right? And uh, men supposedly be more being more mental, and, and and women more physical. I mean, all that is sort of completely outdated in a way. I mean, that that's not how we want to think about human beings anymore, right? And and. Uh, <coughs> Also, at some point, you, you, when there was this talk about uh, the meaning of ritual or meaninglessness of ritual, uh, that you uh, said something about uh, in, the, in the middle of ritual, stopping, you stop thinking or something like that, a moment like that where you stop thinking mm -hmm. in relation to uh, the, the idea of meaning, right? Mm -hmm. But um, meaning is not, uh, I mean, dependent on thinking necessarily, right? I mean, I think that's part of your larger point is that there's a, a lot of meaning in action. Too. Yeah. yeah, so I, 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 I really didn't want to have a kind of a dichotomy between rituals and texts and thinking and doing. On the contrary, I think it's in the doing that we also create meaning or that cre meaning is created or that meaning emerges sometimes that intentionally, sometimes that is unintentionally. Sometimes we only find that after the fact. Uh, sometimes we're realizing it already during the doing that we that we're changing rituals, that we're changing tradition. Um, and I also, I, I thought about using the, um, I disputed with myself or debated with myself to use the, the example of Melissa Raphael because one of the, the critiques on her is precisely that, well, <laughs> that that in her way of thinking, she, she seems to presume that there's this male experience, well, male experience, and, and which is of course not, uh, absolutely not the case. It's much more complex than that. Nevertheless, it can be the fact that because there are different rituals for men and women, the divine is experienced differently. But there are, uh, there's a risk of generalized statements, but I don't want to, I mean, want to go into that, but, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, you use the word messy a number of times, which yeah. is right. I think that's because I have a big family yeah. and like my <laughs> I think it's because what you're talking about, mm -hmm. and I think we have a, a difficult time theorizing messiness, mm -hmm. other than to say it's messy. And I wonder if somebody like Soja, and his notion of third space, right, and thinking about shared pilgrimage spaces, say, mm -hmm. and the ways in which the, this kind of fecund—it's not exactly meaning in the way we're talking about, but something happens in that messiness, and I wonder. I, I don't know that work, but, but what I like about the work of my colleague, and I, I think it's always important that you credit people you work with, is that what, what he looks at, and I, I don't know whether it goes in that direction, at shared pilgrimage sites, is that he, as a ritual scholar, he looks at the way that on these sites, ritualists from different traditions start imitating each other's behavior. Yeah? So they start doing similar things question then is, do they give similar meanings to that? That is, not a, that is, that is absolutely not certain. Huh? Um, but but they, it's like this, this space where a lot, lots of things happen um, in a very strange way. Uh, but no, I do not have a theory nor a theology of messiness I would love for one to see. <laughs> uh, yes, and then John. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I get the impression that this kind of approach uh, comparative theology 
makes room, paves the way for a big proper engagement with uh, religious traditions that are rooted in an oral tradition, like uh, where I come from. Yeah, with an oral tradition. Has that been your experience, maybe, doing comparative? Mm. I have to be honest, no, but I think it's a very important point, and I think it's, it's I, I can imagine, Frank, that that is also something that you struggled with. I mean, you, you have comparative theology. Of course, texts are not necessarily always written down. Eh? There's a, text is also, are also a larger category, certainly also in Judaism, eh? um, where you have the com the, 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 oh, the complementarity between the oral and the, and the written form of the text. But I think it's certainly a, 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 a a limitation of comparative theology as it is done now, uh, that it is based only on those traditions that are uh, 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 transferred in, uh, transmitted, thank you, transmitted in written form. And it would be challenging to see how comparative theology could also happen based on oral traditions, which also have a more or less stable, um, I mean, it's not less stable than in written form because of all the interpretations going on, and that would be very challenging, but I haven't gone into that myself, but it, I think it, it, it should be done. Yeah, John Paul. Can I just add a, a footnote oh, yes. there? Because that reminds me of the fact that our whole entire academic, doctoral, educational system is often oriented toward what we can do here and what's in the library and the skills that we have, and it may be the anthropological work becomes a model which is, it's not in the library, and you can't do it here, you have to go there. A whole different set of language skills and commitment of time that you might have to go for two or three years. You can't just go for six months you know, if you're not from the place you're studying. So it, it opens up issues about how we educate at the doctoral level, and what kind of expertise counts toward tenure and so on. It could change the whole calculus. Um, Asserting that um, comparative rituality or comparative liturgical theology will produce helpful, constructive theology. Is that accurate? Yeah. So, which is um, an important theoretical claim, which I'm very sympathetic to, but I'm trying to figure out, I know all these comparative theologians, and we all participate in the rituals of other religions regularly. It's just something to do. And people teach world religions in colleges, and they take their students to different places and whatnot. And what I'm wondering is why there hasn't been more constructive theology produced already on the basis of interreligious ritual participation. Yeah, but I think it has to do with various factors. I think the story I told is part of it. I, I do think so. Um, the way we, we teach theology and the way we do comparative religion, um, I think that's part of it. But part of it is also what Frank says, it's more time consuming, it will, it will ask a different approach, it will ask more anthropological work. Uh, I think that's, one, that's a second element, which is, I think, very important. Um, I also think, um, thirdly, and I haven't addressed this in this topic, uh, oh, in, this, in this lecture I have done so elsewhere, that um, it's not for everyone acceptable to do this kind of work. Um, imagine you would be a Jewish comparative theologian. I, I, I'm not going to say what you can and can't do, but I can imagine that there are certain limitations in what rituals you can participate and to what extent you can participate in them, as there, would, there might be also for Catholics and other traditions by that for that matter. There are also, and it, it's, that is an interesting topic to, to go into, the, the limits and the boundaries of interrituality. 
um, um, and, and, and you've written about that too, about what is allowed and what is not allowed and what is the ethical dimension of that and the religious dimension. So it is, um, I, I wrote somewhere that one of the problems with interrituality, um, so that what makes it attractive is that what makes it problematic. Yeah? So what makes it attractive is that it allows for a very deep learning an embodied learning, you could say, if you do it over time, not just by one time, if you do it, yeah. Um, but that also means that the gods of another tradition may speak to you in a very close way, yeah, in such a way that might become, could become more problematic than the way they'd speak to you via the text, which is a bit more uh, distanced, which is only by seeing and not the touching and the smelling and the eating. I mean, they come very close, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's in many of the of the of the um, what what intrigues me um, in this kind of work would, for example, be. And I gave several um, examples of how divine presence is taught in different traditions and how rituals. And I'm intrigued in why, for example, in certain traditions where you also have the acknowledgement of divine presence, for example, in a book, you can't touch the book, whereas other traditions say you have to touch the book. <laughs> and it has, to, it has to be to do also with um, distance and being close and having the, 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 the correct uh, distance and the correct space in between. And so that, that, that kind of questions also intrigued me, but I kind of deviated from your answer, <laughs> from your question. But I think it's, it's, it's all of these factors that, that play into the field. Uh, yeah, there was. So, th I think you were first. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so I, I had a question about the uh, the implications of uh, the, this turn toward ritual for historical study. So I'm someone that does comparative work, but primarily, in fact, totally within a pre-modern time frame. <laughs> and so I can only access rituals through texts. Mm -hmm. And in fact, to uh, the risk for me of of learning from participating in rituals would be a, that it would sort of ahistorically skew my understanding of pre-modern ritual. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have sort of uh, proposals for historical study of ritual, or if, uh, on the other hand, there's a sort of concomitant call to modernity along with what you're saying. I was just, but I, I don't know it well, so I'll, I'll look it up and send it to you. But I was just reading when preparing for all of this. And so apparently there's an entire move nowadays um, um, within archaeology. I know it's history, so it's not really just archaeology, but just bear with me for a moment. Um, <laughs> within archaeology, towards doing archaeology via the census. And I have no idea how they do it. I just read the cover, and it sounded very interesting. But I'll send it to you, and maybe it's helpful. I have no idea, OK? <laughs> Yeah. Just to, to, to comment on that, I, I was thinking as you were giving your talk about the various ways we read texts, especially texts that were meant, that are actually just um, words uh, written down from, uh, say, poetry, like a poetry recitation, right? Um, in the work I do, I, I turn to poetry, and I have to attend to the way the poem actually sounds. So I actually have to, I have to read it out loud and maybe listen to more professional speakers of the language recite it the way it's supposed to be recited. And actually, attending to the, the structure of the poem is, in a sense, attending to the way it was meant to be recited and actually within a ritual framework, giving sort of further meaning to it just being sort of a philosophical text. Um, certainly, the same would be when you're reading a pre-modern sermon, right? I mean, your sermons are 
are commentaries, but if you put yourself in the place of the person giving the sermon, maybe they're pointing, maybe they're yelling, maybe they're doing different things, that is, an, I think, I'm curious what you think about this sort of liminal space of text that we're setting context of ritual, context of, of uh, yeah, of ritual, basically. Because I think that opens up a new way of reading texts, even by turning to the liturgy. Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about, and I was also back to your question, is that I did read some of it, and, and one of the things that they were doing, um, or seemed to be doing, is that they tried to enact, based on certain texts, what actually happened. So instead of just reading the reports of what actually happened, for example, in the 19th century, or that, they tried to enact it also, to see how that how that, that, that looked like, in a way. Um, and that, 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 that is perhaps, I mean, it's just that intertwinement, yeah. Um, well, other I just wanted to remind us of the story that Herodotus tells of King Skyrim, the city in Turkey, who was totally enamored of Greek culture, and he built a house in the Greek city, and he married a Greek wife, and all this was great until he started practicing the Dionysian rites, and they killed him. That was the end. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> should bear that in mind. Yeah, I gave a, a paper at the AR at another panel on interritual failure. Um, yeah, so where, where this, what I just so enthusiastically spoke about, fails. And what are the limits and the boundaries and, and, and what are the obstacles people bump into. Uh, and also, and that is important, I think, that what that also teaches us about religion that we do not see when we only look at texts. And there was one more question here, so, yeah, okay, sorry. I am uh, also very interested in ritual failure, but I won't, I won't get distracted from my question, which was, um, you know, Fagerberg and Kavanaugh and the other um, people you're in dialogue with in liturgical theology, um, they have a notion of liturgy, which is the, of course, public structured worship, and you're broadening that yeah. to a ritual, which I like. Um, but will you talk about that move that you're doing where you're broadening? Because you said also about the Seder, that we make it too liturgical. Mm -hmm. And like, well, my in, in, initial reaction was we make liturgy too liturgical too. But you're, so just talk about that move from liturgy um, to ritual. Um. I think, um, um, so what I do intend, and so that's why I wasn't at, at the end that happy with my title. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you can't really change that anymore. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's I, I but I, I don't just want to focus on um, official liturgies, but also on broader ritual practices um, that could. But I'm not going to do all of that. But th that is a turn that I, I would be interested in, um, which could be also a turn to lived religion. But as I also said, and I think it's important to note that, that the turn to lived religion is not necessarily a turn to popular religion. Mm -hmm turn to lift religion is a turn to religion as it is lived, but it is also lived by religious leaders. I mean, looking at, for example, a ritual, um, or the, 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 we talked about that yesterday, Adam, the, the interfaith prayer between, the po between a pope and a, and, and, and a Jew and a Muslim, that's very high, but it's also, they also are living religion. So I think, um, so I'm not just interested in popular religion, um, and you, you could say that shared pilgrimage sites are a form of, of, of popular religion, but broadening it um, and, and including all the various trends, though I I'm not, not all going to do that. Eh? Yeah, I think it's important because people quite often say, oh, so now you're going to, and, and there's something condescending in that. So now you're going to look at what ordinary people do. I mean, 
there's something very condescending also in the way that that is uh, talked about. Yeah. I was thinking um, one of the things that comes to my mind in this course, when you were talking early on about the, um, the reasons why scholars yeah. turn to the text and all that, the kind of the Protestant principle of the word and so on. I was thinking of, of in terms of my own work, the, the Catholic reason for that. One Catholic reason would be, and I, I'll defer later to the liturgical theologians in the room, <laughs> is that the liturgy of the word is for everybody, and the yeah. liturgy of the Eucharist is for the faithful or the few. And that the church will often say, yeah, everybody can come and listen to the readings, the homily is for everybody, but only certain people are, are able to come forward for communion. I'm realizing that, in a sense, carrying that attitude over mm -hmm. to the study of Hinduism, in my case, and, it, and this, in some ways, is wrong-headed because it may not look the same way from the Hindu perspective. The text is for everybody, and the participation is for the few. Mm -hmm. So the, the actual worship in the temple is, is not for everybody, whereas everybody can read the text. Now, if it's an oral text that you have a right to be here to listen, that's a different thing. But the book is for everybody. It's a very Christian principle, mm -hmm. but also in the Catholic, in the Mass, mm -hmm. yeah. it's for everybody. Mm -hmm. But then also, that what this says is stakes are higher, that what you really want to do is receive communion. And what you really want to do is participate in the Hindu ritual. But you also, because you have this Catholic instinct to think, well, not everybody can do the communion. You're not allowed to participate in the worship of the deity. But that's what you really want to do. And so you revert back to the text, because that's, in a sense, out of deference. That's as far as you're allowed to go. So there's kind of a Catholic logic of why staying with the text is actually yeah. better. And I, I think what that alone, comparing different theologies of why you're doing one thing and you're not doing another thing, that alone would already be interesting. Um, just to see why, I mean, your reasoning will certainly be different from that of Shoshana, I think, of why you can participate or you're not participating. And I think, John Paul, in, in answer to your question earlier, I said, well, for some people, um, you're not allowed to do this or that, but on the other hand, on the receiving end of the host, some hosts would just say, no, but you can't do this or you can't do that. So it's, it's both ways why I think it's sometimes also more difficult. But the very fact that you acknowledge that and you think about that also, I think, le teaches us a lot about religion. Um, yeah. I think there was one more question. One last question. Oh yes, we haven't heard you. Um, I'm doing some research on some uh, Chinese Catholic uh, drama in, in early 20th century. Um, some, some Chinese Jesuits, they uh, kind of uh, dramatized some biblical stories into uh, some uh, performative text. And those texts were performed on some, uh, say, religious festivals or feast days. And those texts occupying, I think, kind of between uh, ritual and text. They, they, they perform some kind of ritualistic functions, but they're not really kind of uh, like the Mass or Eucharist. So I was just wondering, how do, would you comment on the, uh, the performance of drama, for example, a political drama, uh, into, uh, how to say, what, what you are thinking of about the ritual? I haven't thought about that. Um, I'm, 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 I should 
probably pretend that I have, um, but I haven't, um, and and so I I don't really know. It, 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 but what it what it what it immediately alludes me to is precisely that these are not fixed categories. Uh, that it's 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 and and so again in in response to you, it's it's not text and ritual and 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 some kind. No, it's these are categories that that how do you say that are interwoven and are intermixed and 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 are different ways that we deal with texts out and and we know that. Uh, next to studying and reading them or maybe meditating or praying things you might do in silence um, you you also dramatize them and of course there are other other very problematic examples of such dramatic performances i'm thinking about uh, the the performance of of um, the whole good week in oberammergau for example um, um, where you have very uh, the, the the whole drama in 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 various european cities of the the holy week is also a dramatic performance of a text um, which is also ritualized it's reenacted is done again and, and again and it's ritualized also in the sense that it can't be it, it, there's a, a lot of resistance against changing the way that is performed also it is so it's 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 creative but at the same time resisting change um, in a ritualized way um, so there are different various uh, examples of that um, and, and I think it, it, for me, shows that this is very uh, complex. We, um, the other tradition, of course, of these kinds of lectures is that not everyone has to run from the room when it's over. So if you'd like to linger a bit, there's still more to eat and drink. And I'm sure Marianne would be happy to meet some of you more personally. But let's close our formal sessions by thanking you very much.